everyone. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod here continuing with our Big Ten previews. Today's team is Rod's number six team, the Indiana Hoosiers. Thank you to all of you who support the show via one-time gifts through PayPal or Venmo or on recurring monthly basis at Patreon or on Substack. As a reminder, recurring monthly supporters on Patreon and Substack qualify for our monthly drawing for nudge printing gift cards. If you want to learn more, head on over to tiffnots.com support for links and more information. Uh, sorry, we had, this is a slightly delayed because I, I'm guessing that's probably the first time you've ever had someone have to uh, delay talking to you and send you a message saying they're shucking corn. I th- <laughs> is that right, Rod? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the the great irony is uh, my wife's from Iowa, yet she is, and of course, a corn snob, but she can't actually touch corn husk or the um, the silk because she is massively allergic to it. So actually leaving the state of Iowa was probably one of the best I've things. I've never heard of that. Really? Yeah. Huh. Her allergies Boy, actually got a lot better here. <laughs> she would have had a hard time growing up where I did. The end of our backyard was the end of the city limits. And literally just behind it for most of the years, let's say a lot of the years I was living at my parents' house, there was a cornfield. Yeah. So right right there. I mean, you know, that's steps from my house. Her life was like that. She had cornfields all around. Her grandfather, he's a farmer and just next door, he had all kinds of fields all over the place. And by that time he had rented out most of his land, but he still had a, you know, massive garden, his backyard and corn everywhere. She actually, I think got a bad asthma attack from mowing the lawn once. And so she got out of mowing the lawn ever again in her life. So <laughs> well, that's, that's a way, good deal. That's the way it's a very, <laughs> I'd take that trade off. Um, <laughs> it, it, so she can eat it, but she's just allergic to the silk. Yes. And now we've really been here weird. almost 20 years. And so we're to the point now where she's, she, we can get corn at Meyer and she says it's okay. So for the huh. longest time it was, you know, this corn, you know, subpar. I don't know. This is not nearly <laughs> yeah. what it is like back home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, sure. admittedly, going back to Iowa, it is fantastic sweet corn. There's no question you get this stuff from the farmers down the street or whatever. It's pretty amazing. But I don't know. Well, let's let's talk about a school in another state where they grow corn. Yeah. Let's talk about Indiana because uh, they, they have probably, they have much better corn than Michigan corn. But, you know, do they grow the sugar beets? Uh, so Indiana last season, 23 and 12 overall and um, 12 and 8 in the Big Ten. They were number 30 in Ken Palm. And by any standards recently, in recent history by Indiana, it was a very good year. Historically, you know, okay. Uh, it's not a fantastic year. They, have, they, um, they haven't had that many wins since Tom Crean back in 15 and 16. And this year's, this, or I should say last year's team is a little different in that they were better offensively than they were defensively. So they were 28th in Ken Palm offensively and 45th defensively. And they had not been able to shoot well for a long time, which is always we thought was kind of weird. Historically, Indiana's always been known yeah. for their shooting. <laughs> and yet last the year, the whole they, state, yeah. Yeah, the entire state, right from their backyard, you know, the, the peach basket they got in, you know, in the cornfield. Uh, so they hit threes uh, at 36.8%, which is very good last season, putting them 39th yep. in the country. They're very good from twos at 65th, largely probably because of uh, Trace Jackson Davis and yep. the, the good uh, interior offense they had. Uh, they didn't turn the ball over a ton, which they've been doing in the past. They were 78th in turnovers, which not fantastic, but not terrible. And they were really good defensively. I mean, they were uh, 20th in t- defending twos, and they had a really great block percentage. Again, 
thanks to Trace Jackson Davis, where they were 12th in the country. And so, you know, when I think when we looked at the coaches when they came in, we had Johnson and Shrewsbury and Woodson all come in the same year, I believe, right? Now, Shrewsbury yes. has moved on yes. to Notre Dame. And I think the feeling was at the time that probably the weakest of the three coaches was probably Woodson, even though he had good at pro experience, but, you know, whether he could actually do this at Indiana. When they came in, I don't think it, we were able to tell. I would say after year one, yes, I would have said that. Um, but then last year, I think where Minnesota went, I would probably revise it and put Woodson second. Sure. But, but it's not. Here's the thing. It, it's difficult for me to really get a firm grip on where I think IU is because you look at his first two years and he's gotten them to the tournament, both of them, which by Arch Miller standards, pretty damn good. Yeah. By historical standards at Indiana, it's the bare minimum, mm -hmm. right? That's your equivalent to a gentleman's C in uh <laughs> As a, as a friend of mine who went to Harvard law school used to tell me was the, uh, the, the real sign of doom. If you got that in a class at Harvard, cause they don't like to give anybody anything less than a B, but, um, in, in any event, uh, I think the fact that they finished second in the league, now they weren't close to being a title team, but they did get. They were a team that managed to hand Purdue one of their losses. Right. Or did they beat them twice? They, they beat no, them I don't twice. They, they swept them. them. Did they? They beat yeah. them. Okay. They beat them West Lafayette. So that was kind of a, a nice statement. And there were points, especially at Assembly Hall, where they looked very, very good. But away from home, not nearly as impressive. They once again, I mean, it's been forever since Indiana has gone on a long tournament run. Tom Crean had one team that went to a sweet 16 and, and that team actually underachieved. That was the 12, 13 team that won the big 10 was a number one seed. And see if this found sounds familiar to you, Spartan fans lost to Syracuse and their zone in a sweet 16 game <laughs> yeah. when they were heavily favored, but that's it. I mean, then you go before that. And I think the last, like, you know, deep run was under Mike Davis. I don't think Kelvin Sampson ever had one. Um, and you'd have to go to their run to the final four under Mike Davis. That's a long time ago. That's, that's more than 20 years ago. So, you know, I, what, it, where is Mike Woodson? Well, again, is, is he restoring them to the gentleman's C level? Yes. He's done that thus far. Is he getting Indiana back to where I think their people believe they are entitled to be? Not even close. And, you know, this year, there's a lot of turnover. We're going to get into it. The guys they lost, particularly one of them, huge losses. Yeah. He's, he's done, by most standards, he's done a reasonably good job in the portal. That remains to be seen how that actually plays out. And recruiting's been... Okay, but I, I just don't know where he is. To me, and we've talked about this a lot over the years in various contexts on this podcast. If you have not experienced Indiana, what basketball means in Indiana, I mean, really experienced it. I think most of our listeners have at least a general idea, but when you go there, 
And I'll give you an example. So I've been there many times over the years for AAU tournaments. Right. So be it uh, the old um, run and slam in Fort Wayne. And more recently, you know, EYBL has done a lot of their events in Indianapolis. That's been one of the most familiar stops. And when you go to those things, you frequently, there's a main gym, but you frequently end up in what are called satellite gyms, especially for younger age groups. So 15 and under, 16 and unders might not play all or even any of their games at the main gym. They're going to be somewhere else. And those tend to be high schools. Mm -hmm. And go to just a standard Indiana high school gym, and you will be stunned (laughs) by the size, by the scale of it. And it tells you something that alone tells you what the sport means in that state. Right. And then, so you, you look at the college level, Purdue obviously has a very strong fan base. It's a school that cares deeply about basketball. They've got a very strong fan base. I don't mean to denigrate them, but Indiana is the dominant, um, brand right in the state. They are in basketball. It's kind of the way. I would, I would look at it as akin to the way football plays out in the state of Michigan. I love Michigan State. I think Michigan State football is a very serious brand. And in the vast majority of other states, they would be the biggest deal, historically and otherwise. It's not the case here. Michigan is the football brand. Yeah. Basketball, it's become a different story in the last quarter century, in, in my view. But, um, but football, that's just how it is. In basketball, Indiana is in that role. And Indiana has largely been an irrelevancy for, you know, but for that one kind of freaky Mike Davis run from 30 years. Yeah. I mean, the the end of (laughs) the end of Knight's regime was not good on the court. I mean, they were okay. They were still making the tournament, but they had some teams that were very highly regarded in terms of recruiting and talent. But he wasn't winning with those teams anymore the way he had been. My memory of Indiana is, you know, 70s to the early 90s when they were basically what Michigan State has been right for the last 25 years. The dominant coach in a league filled with great ones, the dominant program in a league filled with great ones. And every single year, you knew there was a chance that they were going to be relevant nationally. They weren't going to the Final Four every year, but. They, I mean, the, the man won three national titles, so <laughs> that, that tells you a lot. Um, Indiana hasn't been close to that for the last 30 years. And if you, that's why I do think it's funny. You will have younger fans. We see it on social media, on message boards, Michigan State fans, fans of other Big Ten programs or even other national programs who just can't understand why Indiana is treated as basketball royalty. You know, they are when when you talk about blue bloods, generally people mean six programs. There'll be Duke, Carolina, Kentucky, Kansas, UCLA, and then Indiana. And Indiana is there by virtue of the fact that they had that run with Knight and they had two other national championships before him. So they have five. That's why they get in that club. But a lot of people, especially younger people, don't think they merit it. And I, I can understand that perspective. If your basketball universe is the last 30 years, Indiana's not even as good as Wisconsin. Right. 
They're not, yeah. they're not mm -hmm. as accomplished. So why are they treated that way? They're, they're still treated that way because people our age remember what they were and the state and the school cares so deeply about the sport that you, and I'm saying this as an outsider, not as an Indiana fan, but I always feel like, well, there could be a turnaround coming and they could, because the resource, everything you need is there. They have tremendous in-state basketball. They have all the resources. The school cares about it. The fan base cares about it. The facility, you know, everything. It's all there. They just haven't been able to get it right on the coaching side. I am far from convinced that Mike Woodson is getting it right. He's gotten it better than Archie Miller did. I don't know how much that means. He hasn't done what Tom Crane, Tom Crane won two big 10 championships. Yeah. Mike Woodson's only been there two years, but you know, Oh, for two and not really, even despite finishing tied for second last year, not really close. Um, so he's got some work to do. I think this season will be interesting because it is definitely a transition year. So if he can, if he can keep them in the upper tier of the league, well, that might, that might be telling us something. You know, but Mike Woodson's not a young man. I mean, Mike Woodson, I, I will put it to you this way. When Mike Woodson was playing for Indiana in college, I was in elementary school. <laughs> so he's not young. He's So he's not likely to be the guy seven years from now, eight years from now. Yeah. So it's kind of got to happen quick if he's going to have that kind of success. And I, my guess, my assumption is, that they brought him in to steady the ship, kind of reestablish them, and then hand off the baton to somebody else. I wouldn't say he's quite gotten to the point that you'd feel comfortable with him being a baton hander just yet. This year will tell us something. If, if he is that guy to really elevate the program and then be able to pass that off to somebody who can sustain it. Yeah, just for, I guess... Uh verification he is 65 this year so right uh, yeah like you said right. he's i mean he's i'm got, not young and he's, he's got, a lot older than me <laughs> he's got like five seven years maybe 10 at most he's, ba he's basically almost is those age i mean what is there like yeah. a two-year age gap yeah and people basically. are you know, every year when's tom is retiring right so uh, what mike woodson's the answer i mean yeah. and and we, even when we talked about initially when he came on as coach i mean the expectation was that there was going to be, that was the sort of some thought that Dane Fife might be the heir apparent yeah. in training, yeah. waiting, you know, in waiting. And I think he <laughs> thought that at least, long. and that obviously didn't last yep. very long. Well, what I have heard is that that was a plan that somebody else had in their administration who didn't really explain that part to Mike Woodson. <laughs> and that wasn't the only thing. There, I, you know, and I, I do want to, I do want to backtrack because I'm glad you brought that up because that triggered another thought. If you remember where we were last year, um, we talked about this about Dane Fife getting dismissed, and mm -hmm. the story that I had heard is that the inmates were running the asylum to an extent in that program, and that, and again, I can't say this with 100% certainty, but I feel pretty confident that this was part of the problem, that there was a disagreement within that staff as to how to handle this. And so I wondered, and, and I, I think it was verified because some of there were, there was an interview that trace Jackson Davis gave last year in the off season where he talked about needing everybody needing to be more accountable. I mean, he's, he, he didn't come right out and say it, 
but he said enough to convince me that the things I heard were correct Yeah, about what was going on. And I really wondered about that as, okay, that's great that he's saying that, but it's a lot of the same characters around. And if the one guy on the staff that was going to lean on people to clean up their act got fired, what's going to happen? Well, credit to Mike Woodson in this sense. I thought, even though Indiana was far from a great team last year, I thought they played hard. I thought um, they looked like a cohesive group with some chemistry. Those were not issues. The issues that they had the year before did not look to be there last year. So whatever happened, whether it was player-driven or whether the coaching staff approached it differently or both, they did get that handled. I, I think you would fairly call last year a solid year for Indiana basketball. A great one? No. But a solid one, yeah. And and I had a question as to, you know, you, you remember there was all that preseason hype about them, and that was one of my biggest questions was, do these guys like each other and do they care enough yeah. to, to really achieve at that level? And I didn't think that was a problem. So I got to give Woodson credit for that. And I... I can't remember. I mean, well, I was going to ask you if Winston was, was he a head coach before or was this his first head coaching job? He was an NBA head coach. Oh, okay. yes. All right. And so he was in that. That was the, that was the big question mark is Mike Woodson hadn't had any time around college basketball right. the day Since after he was, left yeah. as a <laughs> player. A player. Yeah. Right. Won a national championship with Isaiah. And then he was an NBA guy from there on. And he was, by the way, a very highly regarded, NBA coach. He had some, he had some D I believe he was head coach a couple places in the NBA and he had some decent results. He wasn't a failure. He was a very highly regarded assistant coach. He was part of the, um, the Pistons staff when they won the title in Oh four, the going to work group. He was one of uh, Larry Brown's assistants, uh, very highly regarded defensive mind. Um, so he's yeah. Any criticism I'm loving here is not about Mike Woodson as a basketball mind. It's more about, Coming back to college basketball at this stage in a career, where's your motivation level? You're doing things that you haven't had to do ever, which are critical in college basketball as, as opposed to the pros, namely recruiting. Um, you know, it's just, it's, they're, yeah. they're different sports in so many ways that it just seemed a little bit of desperate, uh, a sign of desperation to me. But, you know, you can't, to me, I think where I land on this is we're still finding out with Mike Woodson <laughs> where he sits. He has not outright failed by any means. You can't say that. But I also don't think you could say, yeah, he's really righted the ship. And Indiana yeah. basketball is back where they think they belong. I don't think he's done that either. So the jury's still out. Yep. I think that's uh, that sums it up pretty well. And I think that's, we'll move on to uh, talk about the players. I only add that, you know, I, the way I think about Indiana basketball is the way I think about Texas football. You know, you see those 40,000 high schools, you know, in Texas and you, yep. and you see the big you know, arenas in, in basketball for Indiana. Uh, so let's talk about players departing and numbers one, two, and three are Trace Jackson Davis. Uh, he's was obviously their best player. He was uh, all big 10 great senior season. He, Play, I mean, that guy played almost every minute. Uh, pretty impressive for, for what he's doing and how he played. Almost 21 points a game, a little over uh, 10.8 rebounds a game, which are both career highs. He had about three blocks a game as well and four assists a game, shooting 58% for the floor. Uh, 
and 74% for the wide, which was something he had struggled with a little early in his career. Yep. So, I mean, uh, fantastic way to finish your career. And it was, and for him coming back, there's some question whether he's going to come back to Indiana. If he came back, he left, left mm-hmm. the draft, went to Indiana and had a great year. And they, and sent, and the only thing you'd say for him as a disappointment is that they didn't win the big 10. He still made a mistake in his recruiting. He should have come well, to yeah. Michigan state, <laughs> but, um, but that aside, look, he was outstanding. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate for him that he happened to have, that year and the same year that Zach Eady put up the numbers he did at Purdue because right. I would say what Trace Jackson Davis did last year, and I might even be conservative with this, I would say eight out of every 10 years, he would have been a Big Ten player of the year. Sure. With that kind of season. He was great. And the the thing that the numbers are all fantastic. And and for a guy to lead his team in scoring, rebounding, blocks, and assists, <laughs> very rare. Yeah. Very rare. Um, with those four categories being the best you've got. Um, the assist thing is maybe a little damning for Indiana, but nevertheless, uh, it's a fact. A center averaging four assists per game, very impressive. But I think the most important thing he did is he finally learned to play really, really, really hard every minute of the game. And as you said, that was most of the minutes played that he was out there on the floor, which makes it even more impressive. He wasn't getting a lot of rest. I don't know if you have the minutes, if you have the numbers up, but I'm guessing he was probably in the mid-30s in minutes per game. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, t- I'll look it up um, while you're talking here. But... but he didn't get a lot of rest, and it didn't matter because he was a constant kinetic ball of motion on the court, and that's a big part of why he produced at the levels he did. You know, with him in the past, you could kind of expect that um, you could find ways to make him disappear a little bit. He was always good. All four years, he was good. But last year, he was great. And there is a difference. And he's impossible to replace. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, he was so good. And... And I think to your point, the fact that he could play so hard all the time and you never got a rest from him. I mean, he, like you say, he was on the court all the time. Yep. I mean, he averaged 34 and a half minutes a game. Okay. So, I mean, he was so almost, I said 35. So yeah. So you're right there. I mean, yeah. so he was, you barely yeah. got a respite from him and, and he was effective all 35 minutes. It wasn't like, that's he the was, point, right? That was, he wasn't that was right. so tough. That was the difference. You know, he would have in previous years, he would have segments where he would, you know, get a lot done, obviously. But then he would have other points where he would sort of disappear, be quiet, or you could contain him. Last year, that just didn't happen. You had to deal with him coming at you hard every minute he was out there. Well, and that leads us to the next departing player, Jalen Huchifino. Six, seven freshman ended up going to the draft. He was uh, had a fantastic freshman year. He took over his point guard when Xavier Johnson went down early in the season. He averaged 13 points a game at 42, 33, and 78 shooting. Pulled down four point one rebounds a game, second in the team assist at three and a half. And I wonder at some point, on some level, if because he was the point guard versus Xavier Johnson, that it made Trace Jackson Davis better. Because I would, I felt like the years before, it's almost like they forgot he was on the floor. Like somebody's, you know, TJ yep. would be there in position and post and, you know, yep. single man coverage and he wouldn't get the ball. And you're like, well, you guys can't shoot. Why, why is he not have the ball? 100%. And we would talk about that. On this podcast, I'm glad you brought that up because that's an important point. Now, some of it was that Trace just played so much harder 
that he demanded the ball more. But it absolutely was true that a flaw for Indiana, really his first three years, not just the year before with Xavier Johnson, but all three years. If you remember, Indiana's guard play up until last season had been an Achilles heel for a while. Right. They really just didn't have good guard play. And part of that was those guys not looking for their best players, which were their guys on the interior. I do think Indiana got noticeably better when Xavier Johnson went down. And and Hood Shafino had to be the guy. Now, Hood Shafino was not a finished product. I mean, you look at his numbers and they are solid. But, you know, 33% from three, okay. But his shot selection was problematic. He was very much a on-game, off-game kind of guy, which, again, is not really – I'm not really even intending that so much as a criticism because that happens to freshmen, even good ones. Yeah. They learn, and typically it takes – even for the, for really good players, it takes a year to find that level of consistency, you know? And – but I, I still think they were better. The, the thing you could say about him that was, I think, most true in a positive light is that he was dynamic. He was a guy who was always looking to make things happen. And when he was on, that made Indiana a very difficult team to stop because uh, he had a nice mid-range game. If he happened to be hot from three, that was a problem. He also had the ability to get to the rim and finish. Um, but look, you know, one year and out, his decision was proven right because he was drafted in the first round by the Lakers. So, you know, he... He got done what he needed to get done in his year in Bloomington. Um, obviously, if they had him coming back as a sophomore, we'd be talking about, you know, just needing to find greater consistency. And if he did, you know, maybe a first-team All-Big Ten guy. So he was a good player as a freshman. Um, but because of the inconsistency he had, I don't think he's impossible to replace. It's not like TJD, where they're just not going to find that same guy. For sure. Next would be six six power forward Race Thompson, averaging eight uh, and a half points a game on 49, 28, and 69 shooting, pulling down 5.2 rebounds a game. He missed six games due to injury and just didn't look himself for a while with that knee problem. And yeah. I think he was, he just didn't quite live up to, I think, what they'd hoped for this season. And it, I think yes. largely because of, I don't know, I think somewhat to the injury because he was, I think, looking better early in the season. But even then, he still didn't quite, I think, look as comfortable as he should in the, when he was out on the floor. He was better as a junior. And I, I ascribe most of what you just said to health. Um, Cause even when he played, he wasn't the same guy I'd seen him be, you know, at, at his best, he's another guy, kind of the way we were describing TJD, except I think he figured it out earlier in his career at his best race. Thompson was just energy personified. Yeah. That's how he played. Not the most skilled guy in the world, but he played so hard that he made things happen. And, you know, at his best, he and, and Jackson Davis were a really good college one-two punch in the post. He wasn't at his best last year. Um, you know, still contributed. 8.4 and 5.2 is terrible. But the shot never got dialed in. So that meant, you know, you could, you could let him shoot from the perimeter if he chose to and not feel like you were going to pay a price. Yeah. Um, and he just wasn't quite as impactful as I think they'd anticipated. Yeah, he needed all his uh, all his speed and quickness, and he's losing lacking yeah. some. He definitely yep. made him less than for a player. Uh, speaking of guys who 
were a little bit less than is Miller Cop, who's a, a North was a Northwestern transfer. He'd been the Hoosiers two years. Uh, had a better season last year, however. He averaged eight point one points a game on forty eight, forty four, and eighty three shooting. So he's a large reason why they were so much better from outside than they were the yeah. previous years. He really had struggled with that shot the prior year, and defensively yep. he was a real liability. Cleaned that up a little bit. Still not like fantastic, but he was at least uh, serviceable, I guess you'd say. Exactly. I, it was a big, big positive for that team. They, you know, he transferred to IU the year prior. Big expectations because he'd been effective at Northwestern, and he just never dialed his shot in. As a, as a fourth year guy came back last year with the COVID year, play a fifth season. And that really benefited Indiana. I mean, 44% from three, eight points a game. That's what they needed. This is a team that for years, basically since Tom Crane left town, Indiana struggled shooting the ball from deep. So weird. and last year, last year yeah, it is. And last year they didn't. And cop was a big part of that equation. So he, he served his purpose. You know, he was never going to be a great two-way player, but as you alluded to, I think he got to be playable at least, which was good enough given that he was giving them real production as a shooter. Yeah. I remember the Big Ten tournament the year before in Indianapolis, and he was so bad defensively. I mean, he was unplayable. <laughs> oh, yeah. The game, there was, yeah. He was just terrible. Yeah, it was real. Pro- Look, we say, oh, he was play- playable. He was serviceable. That sounds like not much of a compliment, but in his case, that was real. That was real progress. Next, we'll go to six six senior Jordan Geronimo. He was also injured for a part of the season and never quite, I think, fulfill his athletic potential. He averaged four point two points a game on fifty five, twenty six, and fifty two shooting, grabbing two point four rebounds a game, and so he actually transferred. And he'll be out in Maryland. Yeah, and you know he he obviously. I think still has the potential to be productive, but if he's going to find that extra gear, it's going to happen in college park, not Bloomington. Um, I I would think that's a loss. I wouldn't, I've been a delve too deeply into it, but I I wouldn't think IU was thrilled about losing him because Geronimo is one of those guys that when you see him, at least to me, your mind turns to boy, if he can just tighten up the decision-making a little bit, just get that shot dialed in with a little more consistency and stay healthy. You you see the potential. He's a guy who's easy to see the potential in. Um, it hasn't quite ever come together, and last year it didn't quite come together for him. But even having said that, he was the kind of player who every once in a while, you know, could turn in a double digit game. He might get you eleven and five, and help right. you win a game. You know, he he always had that potential. Um, but again, if he finds it, it it's going to be for Kevin Willard, not not Mike Woodson. Logan Duncombe, 6'11 sophomore, barely played last year. He also is leaving the team. He's going to head over to Xavier. He only got action in nine games last season. Yeah, and that you know we talk about this a lot, these guys that leave Big Ten programs, and you can tell something about how they're viewed by where they transfer to. The fact that he's gone to Xavier, play for Sean Miller, I think says something that he's still viewed as a guy with potential in the end. He wasn't a, a hugely uh, highly rated recruit, but um, he was definitely seen as a guy that people thought had a chance to be productive. Um, and I would say that seems to that view still seems to be intact by virtue of where he opted to go. Of course, the other side of that is when you're six eleven, frequently 
teams will take chances on you. Um, <laughs> but he didn't really break through in his two years at Indiana. So from their perspective, you're not really losing a lot because he didn't really ever prove it. He's obviously tired of playing behind Trace Jackson Davis, not getting any minutes on the. I guess you'd say, well, that would change next year, but he must have felt that the way the team makeup was that he had better opportunities in, at Xavier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, finally, uh, for departures is Tamar Bates. <laughs> the 6'4 Bates was a, a guy who apparently only practiced his shooting at uh, Assembly Hall because whenever he left yeah. Assembly Hall, he couldn't hit anything. So it, he torched Michigan State, if I recall correctly. He did. Uh, he, he averaged 6.1 points a game on 39, 37, and 93 shooting. Uh, and I, he was probably well over, I think he was like 55 or 60% at home and like 15 or something on the road. It was like a huge split. Yeah. Big, 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 big gap. Hard to figure out, you know, Bates, Bates is one of these guys that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, he was committed. If I remember correctly, he was committed to Texas and then Chaka smart left. So his recruitment reopened in the spring and, he was just, there was mania around that recruitment. And this happens sometimes. Sometimes it's a guy like that. Sometimes it's, if you remember a name from the relatively recent past, there was a kid Michigan State was recruiting named Mark Smith who ended up at Illinois. And then he made the rounds, ended up a couple, I played at Missouri. He might've played one other place too, for all I know. Um, these springtime guys that just get a lot of hype, maybe more than they actually merit simply because they're available late. And that was the case with Tamar Bates. So there were, there were high expectations around him. And as a freshman, he was, you know, he showed potential, but he wasn't great. Last year, he was better. You know, the, the overall numbers are solid. But as you say, the split between what he was at Assembly Hall and what he was away from home was dramatic. And then he opted to transfer to Missouri, which was fine because, there was a there was a point in time that it it looked like or the rumor was that he might transfer to Michigan. So I'd rather he take his chances on finding consistency <laughs> at another U of M. Um, but again, if you're Indiana, yeah, you you feel like it's a loss because you can look at him and say, hey, another year under his belt and you bet he's going to unlock that better balance, you know, being good home and away. You know, and that wouldn't be crazy to see that happen. But on the other hand, you look at it and say, well, we got to look at what he actually was. And so we have to replace that or improve on what he actually was. Maybe we can find that another player, you know, so it's a loss, but but not necessarily a crippling right. one. Well, if you need to improve your wardrobe, whether you're home or away, there's no better place than nudge printing. Nudge printing are the sponsors for our show. They provide all our our gear, both our hoodies and our t-shirts. You can find those at the final fours on the schedule.com slash merchandise. You can also head on over to the website at nudgeprinting.com where you can find all sorts of Spartan gear, apparel and stickers for your wall, stickers for cornhole, stickers for your computer, all kinds of things, all made in the state of Michigan by Michigan state alums. They're also instrumental in the Spartan strong effort for the shooting victims at Michigan state. Great people, great business, super high quality, so favorite apparel of all my family. So you can't go wrong at Nudge Printing. And as a listener to the show, you get 20% off your order if you type in Final Four into the coupon code at checkout. So check it out at nudgeprinting.com. All right, so let's talk about returning players. And speaking of enigmas, let's talk about Xavier Johnson. 6'3 point guard, uh, played 11 games last year, 
had an injury that took him out for the whole season, but maybe could have come up back at the end, but he didn't really, right? So it was kind of interesting. Uh, he averaged a little under 10 points a game on 42, 37, and 80 shooting, so great numbers. Uh, five assisted games to three turnovers. And he's the guy who you've, you have made the statement a couple times that he looks great on paper, but maybe on paper is not where you play the game. Yeah, I look, I, I'd say this. The stats, the numbers are fine. You know, you look at it, 10 points a game, 37% from three, 42% overall, 80 at the line, solid. Five assists per game. Now, the turnovers were a mm-hmm. bit high. Um, he's got good size for the position. He's ath- reasonably athletic. He can get hot as a shooter. Um, so he can he can give you a varied offensive impact, you know, three-level guy. The biggest thing to me is I look at his time at Indiana and I try to think about him as a guy who has the ball in his hands late in a close game, which we know a lot of Big Ten games are. They're played in a tight, relatively tight window. Do I think of, do I fear Xavier Johnson as a fan of an opposing team? And the answer is no. It's, It's not that he's incapable of making plays. It's just I don't see him make winning plays as often as you'd like from a guy in that position. I I just think his shot selection, his decision-making in general is not ideal, you know, and that's what isn't, that's the part of the story that isn't fully told by the numbers that I just read off. If Indiana is going to be good, Xavier Johnson has to be good because they're, they're all in with him at the point. You know, Hood Shafino's gone. They're, you know, reasonably is not another option. I mean, they like they like a freshman Gabe Cups that we'll talk about, but I, I don't think anybody believes that they're ready to hand the keys to, to Gabe Cups. So it's Xavier Johnson's show. And he's just got to be better than he's been in his time there. I just he's another one of these guys, and we've seen several of them come through college basketball that started their careers at Pitt and Pitt was better last year, but the few years prior Pitt was one of the worst power power five teams in right. the country. And, you know, Marcus Carr was another example. Although I think Marcus Carr is a better player than Xavier Johnson, but you know, Marcus Carr put up good numbers at Pitt and he put up good numbers at Minnesota and good numbers at Texas. But, was he ever truly a great player? I don't think so. And he's better than Xavier Johnson, but not great. Xavier Johnson has put up some numbers. But and the reason I raise this is sometimes when you come from a program like that, you've learned some things, but you haven't really learned what it takes to be a winning player because you haven't been in a winning environment in college. And there there are differences that aren't fully captured by just, you know, counting stats or even some of the efficiency stats. But I'm telling you, you know it when you see it. And I've yet to watch Xavier Johnson and be convinced that, you know, he's a guy. I mean, look, in fairness at Michigan State, until, you know, most of last season, but not even the entirety of last season, I think you could say similar things about A.J. Hogarth. Mm-hmm. I don't, and, and that's at a program where it's all about winning and you are instilled with that. And the difference is that 
you know, at Michigan State, when you don't do those things, you get pulled. And we saw that happen with AJ. <laughs> yeah, plenty. You know, plenty of times. Um, and and I don't know yet if Mike Woodson's got that kind of setup where he can take it because I'm I'm positive he sees it too, but it feels to me like he's not in the same spot. So he's got to kind of roll with it. So we, we'll see if Xavier Johnson is an improved player. But that's what I'm looking for. I'm not I'm not hung up on well he's got to shoot 39 percent from three. <laughs> no, I, I just want to see. When the chips are down, what kind of decisions is he making? Is he making winning plays, or is he trying to trying to play hero ball? Is he putting it on his shoulders, you know, rather than, hey, take what the defense gives you and make the right play, whatever that might be in a given situation. You know, those are the things. That's where Xavier Johnson's got to got to make progress. And and I don't know. I think it's an open question as to whether it happens or not. I think you know if you're Michigan State fan you can look back and you think you know Cassius Winston might be the best example of the kind of player you're talking about a point guard who yes. is able to get what, able to get what he needs but also totally comfortable not getting what he needs and making sure everyone else gets things if that's what the defense is giving them right and so it's almost like you're describing someone who is the point guard but they're not playing like a point guard like they're playing like a guy who just has the ball most most of the time and is yeah, going looking exactly. for his own before he looks for the rest of his team. And it's not, and look, it's not that Xavier Johnson averaged five assists per game Yeah, when he played. So it's not like he never passes the ball, but that doesn't capture it fully either. I'm talking about high leverage situations, which is what it comes down to in, in a heavy percentage of your Big Ten games. If you're a decent team, a good team, you're going to be in a lot of close games. And you're going to be in games where the, the decisions that you're making, say, five minutes and under, are going to, and, and I understand the analytic approach that every decision means the same thing regardless whether where it happens <laughs> in the game. Fine. I accept that from a mathematical point of view. The fact remains, for my team, I want the ball in the hands of a guy when the game is tight and every possession is magnified in importance because it's tight and the clock is ticking. I want the guy who I have confidence in in terms of his ability to read situations and make the right decisions. I don't think Xavier Johnson is a totally selfish player. That that no, would be an yeah. easier criticism to make. It's that when there's a, a big possession, do I trust that guy to read it correctly or do I think he's going to put too much on his shoulders and think it's, it's time to go Kobe <laughs> and and that's that can be a problem. And I've seen that from Xavier Johnson in his time at Indiana. That's mostly what I've seen. I haven't seen a guy that I thought, wow, when the chips are down, that guy knows what to do. Um, you mentioned Cassius Winston. That's a classic example. Mateen Cleaves was that way. You know, a lot of guys at Michigan State at that position have had that knack. And it's because... You know, Tom Izzo admittedly coaches his point guards extremely hard, and it is drilled into them from the point they get on campus. You know, Jeremy Fears is probably going through that right now, that that relentless criticism of the decisions that you make. And eventually, those guys tend to get it. I mentioned AJ. AJ, I felt, turned a corner in that way, and it it wasn't something that you could just strictly measure by looking at his numbers. You had to watch the games, and you had to know what the objective was on every possession and see the decisions he was making 
and the ones that he didn't make. And that was a problem until it wasn't. Right. And then, you know, you, well, we won't, we'll talk about that more, but you know, even as late as the big 10 tournament, we saw those problems too. Right. So for sure. <laughs> so it's yeah. not like, and then he played and then he played and then he played his best basketball of the season yeah. in those three tournament games right. and he was, and he was on the all region team. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the next returning player, Trey Galloway, six foot five, really came into came into his uh, own last season. He averaged 6.7 points a game at 47, 46, and 64 shooting. Third on the team in assists. Had a 3-to-1 assist to turnover ratio. Would occasionally place this um, point guard on the, at the sort of spot situations. And this guy, I mean, if nothing else, he was high motor. And that's what you noticed about him yep. pre- early in his career. And then last year, he translated that into some real um, good production. Yeah. I mean, he found himself as an offensive player. That's the bottom line. As you said, prior to that, he was an energy guy, and he earned a role that way. So it wasn't that he wasn't making any impact, but trust me, they felt a hell of a lot better about him last year than they did his first two seasons um, because the shot. I mean, 46% from three, that's a really good number. Yeah, yeah. And 47% overall, three-to-one assist uh, to turnover ratio, really solid versatile defensive player you know he's he's really matured into a very valuable kind of guy for your team i think the remaining question for trey galloway is okay they've had some guys who were key offensive players to say the least move on does he sort of stay in the same role and other guys step in to those you know higher um, higher usage roles or does he try to take more on? Right. And if he does the latter, is he still able to be as effective? I think that's an open question, but at the very least, you should be getting a very good glue guy, kind of jack of all trades sort of player. And those guys are valuable. So he's, he's definitely, if he has another year, like he did last season, um, you're talking about a career that shaped up pretty well after, you know, his first two years, I don't think, you felt super confident in saying that um, because the offense was just such a struggle. Um, It's amazing what hitting some shots can do. (laughs) Makes a big difference. And just putting yourself in opportunities to get those shots is what makes a big difference to you just by playing hustling. Sometimes pushing those positions to he's always had that. Yeah. He always played hard, but yeah, it was at another level last year. And and I would think that they're hoping he can maybe, get to another level yet beyond that. Yeah. I feel like it all started back in the big 10 tournament the year prior where he has a couple of really good games there. Um, yep. That's right. I remember that. All right. He so had a good run. Let's talk about the, uh, another returning player, Malik Renault, six foot nine sophomore. He was a former uh, McDonald's all American. He averaged 6.1 points a game and 3.7 rebounds a game shooting 55, 25 and 71 played. I think mostly the four occasionally he played the five to play uh, to uh, fill in for trace Jackson Davis when he sat down. I thought a really good player and uh, just, you know, he kind of looked like a, a freshman. <laughs> he's, he's an interesting guy. There, there are some people who are expecting a big leap from him, like to an all big 10 kind of leap. I wouldn't rule that out because the, the potential was there, but he's got some work to do. The biggest thing to me is that he's got a problem that a lot of young big men have, which is he's got to figure out, how to be able to stay on the floor without getting in foul trouble. Yeah. He was just absolutely plagued by it last year. And if he can do that, then a lot of other things could fall into place. Um, 
he's got to be a starter. I think he will be at the four. Um, capable of playing the five as well, but I, I suspect he's going to be the starting power forward. Um, bottom line is they need him to stay on the floor and they need more consistency from him. I think his another problem that's very common for young bigs that he had, and we talked about it with regard to Trace Jackson Davis, I don't think Malik Renault had yet figured out how hard he has to play on a consistent minute-to-minute basis. So if that can come into place and he can figure out how to avoid foul trouble while playing more aggressively, playing harder, then some big things could happen. I could see it. Obviously, 25% from three, not great when you fancy yourself a stretch. (laughs) Um, He's got to shoot the ball better, but I also think he showed enough to suggest that he could be a pretty good post player on offense. And if he can dial up a little more consistency with the jumper, better still. Um, I'm expecting improvement. I think the open question is how much does he go, you know, from 6.1 and 3.7 to say, you know, 11 and five, or is it a bigger leap than that? That's the question. I think he'll make a jump. It's just a question. How big. Speaking of struggling with your jump shot, the next player is six, five sophomore CJ gun who averaged uh, two points a game was came in as a shooter and he shot 31, eight and 80 on the season. A fairly limited volume just because he couldn't hit anything. Yeah. And you know, the problem is he came in with a reputation as a shooter. <laughs> so 8% from three is not going to That's not it. good, right? That said, <laughs> right. But that said, you know, 80% at the line, limited volume, of course, but it does tie. Okay. If a guy can shoot that well from the line, he's probably got a better level of performance in him as a jump shooter. Uh, but I, I think the bottom line for him in earning a bigger role, he's got to find that shot. It's hard to see it happening if he doesn't. Uh, then we'll move on to Anthony Leal, six foot four senior. He also was known as a shooter out of high school, but he's had he struggled with that. Uh, he only played eleven games and scored just two points <laughs> from the free throw line. Yeah, you know he came in with Trey Galloway, and the deal with that was Galloway was the versatile guy, you know, better defensively, kind of an energy guy. Leal was supposed to be the skill guy. Uh, but it hasn't happened for Leal. And consistent minutes have been really hard to come by. And again, same thing as with Gunn. If he could find some consistency as a shooter, there probably are some minutes available. I just don't know if that's going to happen. I don't see a lot of reason to expect it, at least. And finally, Caleb Banks, 6'7 sophomore, averaging two points a game on 55, 40, and 54 shooting. He played in 24 games, uh, but only averaged about five points a game. I think he's a guy who was helped by the Jordan Geronimo decision mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Cause I can see him slotting into the role that Geronimo would have otherwise played as probably as a backup at the three and the four. Uh, he did show defensive potential. So that alone should probably help get him in the rotation. If he can take those decent low volume efficiency numbers and extrapolate that to a bigger role so much the better, but I think Caleb Banks is going to work his way into the rotation in some fashion. All right. So before we talk about the newcomers, I just want to remind you that if you have issues with your gutters or maybe you have, don't even realize you have issues with your gutters, walk around your house, your business, see if you got any water problems. If so, the best option is to call the brothers at Just Two Gutters. We've had a number of fans uh, of our show use them and they've been very pleased with their service. You get 10% off if you mention Final Four. You're covered if you're on the east side of the state near the Metro Detroit area. Greg and his team can take care of you. And on the west side of the state, Grand Rapids out to the lakeshore, 
Kurt and his team can take care of you as well. The brothers who just do gutters, that's all they do. They just do gutters. They don't do they don't do shingles. They don't do siding. They just do the gutters and can do everything you need done. They can replace them. They can repair them. They can clean them. They can put the leaf guards on. Whatever you need done, they can get it done quickly, efficiently, and at very well, good price. And just about any time of the year, as long as they can get up a ladder safely. And for me, they were even out in almost the sleet in February and took care of my gutters and all fixed all my problems. So I'd highly recommend the Brothers Just Do Gutters, the great sponsor of the show and great Spartan fans. So talked about newcomers now for the Hoosiers. We'll begin with Mackenzie McCum, uh, Magop, Mabaco, a 6'7", 3 or 4, uh, who is a top 10 recruit, originally had committed to Duke. And then there were some changes in the rosters at Duke. And so he decided to get out of his commitment, which I think we'll start seeing a little bit more going forward. Uh, and then ended up reopening his recruitment, ended up at Indiana. Yeah, uh, kind of a poster boy for this era that we're in. So he was a guy who was kind of always expected to end up at Duke. That's where he committed to. He had signed there, uh, was part of a very highly rated class. And then a couple of guys at Duke made decisions to come back uh, for soft, their sophomore year, which weren't necessarily expected heading into last season. Filipowski most importantly. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, Mubako asked out of his letter of intentment, uh, a letter of intent, rather. Uh, Duke let him out of the commitment and reopened his recruitment, came down to Kansas and Indiana. A lot of people expected Kansas, but IU won out. So give Woodson credit. He, he won this one. This is going to be very, I think you're right about this being an example of something we will probably see more of um, because you just don't know what to say. And, and we've got one more year of it for sure, because With we've COVID, got one more yeah. year where guys can have a COVID year. So that's really, once we get past that, there will, I think be a little more predictability to it, but for right now, you just, not only do you have, you know, a guy who's a freshman, does he come back for a second year or not? But you've got guys deciding, do I come back for a fifth year after I've already been a senior? And those kinds of decisions will impact that stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if we have something similar happen somewhere this spring, you know? So Mubako at Indiana, big time talent, very athletic, six, seven. He does have some deep shooting ability to go with it. Although there are questions about consistency there, but I think the biggest question for Indiana and for him, <laughs> where do you play is his play style. Because he wants to play on the wing. From everything I've read, that was a big part of his of his thought process. He sees himself as a wing. He sees that as the spot where he has professional potential. The problem is not many people that I've read who seem to be familiar with his game believe that's actually his best position, at, the t at least for now. The feeling that I've seen is that most people who are familiar with this game think that he's really uh, a small ball four at this point. Mm -hmm. And so the questions about him on the wing are not only offensively, like, is he, you know, how is he with the ball in his hands? Do you want him making plays off the dribble? Um, do you want him trying to create his own shot? Things that wings get asked to do that, that power forwards don't. But also on the defensive end, is he truly ready to guard wings? You know, when he when they're playing Michigan State, 
he's probably guarding Jaden Akins. Can <laughs> he handle guarding Jaden Akins? I think that's an open question. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, he's going to start. I'm positive. He's going to play a ton of minutes. I'm betting the house on that too. And he's going to have to be a focal point of what Indiana wants to do because Indiana lost a lot of offense and they've got to replace that. This is a guy who has the ability to score. So those things don't seem to be at this point in question. I think the question is how well does he fit both in terms of his strengths and within the context of Indiana's team? Like that's the open question. And it could be, you know, this gets back to, if you remember a long standing debate in Michigan state circles with the 17, 18 team that was so loaded was they, you know, they played a front court where miles bridges was at the three after he played the four primarily as a freshman. And then you had Jaron Jackson at the four and Nick Ward at the five. Well, you couldn't argue that those were three of your five most talented players, right? Yeah. But I, although I'm not entirely convinced of this argument, there were people whose opinions I respect, Jim Camperoni being one of them, who all year felt that Michigan State was not as good as they could have been because Miles Bridges was never playing his optimal position. Yeah. The problem is, okay, then what do you do? Does that mean that Nick Ward is on the bench, which I think could have been a problem in terms of chemistry? Mm-hmm. You know, it was a little different the year after when Nick Ward started coming off the bench because he'd been hurt. And it was also understood that he was at the end of his road at Michigan State anyway. Yeah. The year before, it was not that kind of situation. It would have been a lot harder to sell it. You could have those kind of dynamics in play here. Indiana's got between um, between bringing Renault back and then three guys that they've added through either uh, through the portal. Um, they got a lot of post players all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. So there's not an easy fit for McBacco at the four. And he doesn't want to play there, by the way. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? I think that's going to be a really difficult question for Mike Woodson to answer. Yeah. Obviously it depends on how he plays too. And that it may, may make your decisions even more difficult, sure. challenging if he's, if he has struggles with that. Yeah, spot. And, and, and if it, and if it works somehow on the wing, it may make all of this move, but I think it's something to watch. Yep. Uh, so next, uh, newcomer, Kello Ware, uh, Michigan State fans might recall the seven-footer McDonald's All-American, had a really good game against Michigan State when they played Oregon out in Portland last year. Uh, unfortunately, that was like one of his better games. He averaged 6.6 .6 points yeah. a game and four rebounds a game in just four starts, where he averaged 1.3 blocks a game. Yeah, uh, another uh, on a team that's got a lot of these kind of boom-bust sort of players, he might be at the top of the list. <laughs> you could see in that MSU game, he was very effective in that one. It was a big part of why they almost pulled off the win. And if you remember, they were as banged up oh. as Michigan State was. Yeah. So, so they, yeah. Oregon really needed him to step up, and he did. Um, Seven-footer, it's funny. When you read about him, and I reflect on what we saw from him in that game last year and seen him a few other times, in bits and pieces during the course of the year, you know, who his profile really reminds me of is Xavier Booker. Oh, he, he was highly ranked because of his, the combination of his size, skill set, and athletic ability. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the total package for Kalel Ware, it's big time. It's the kind of thing that gets you to the McDonald's all American game, gets you on the NBA draft radar, all of those things. Right. 
but you've got to be able to translate that into production. And oftentimes it's, it can be as simple as it's, it's how hard you play. And, you know, this is the thing we, and we're going to talk more about it when we turn to Michigan state. That's the open question with Xavier Booker right now is at what point does he figure out how, what playing hard at Michigan state really means? <laughs> yeah. Kalel Ware had similar issues at Oregon. And I think it was what held him back. You know, that, that production 6.6 points, 4.1 rebounds is okay, but it's not what was, I think they expected more. And Indiana's definitely expecting more. They are expecting him to step in and start at the five bottom line. Yeah. But he's got to play a lot harder. Um, you know, he averaged 1.3 blocks per game. He should be a premier rim protector defensively. He should be a three-level scorer, but he only shot 27% from three last year. So if he's going to do that again, that's not going to cut it. Um, I think the key for him, and we're not going to know until the season starts if this has been accomplished, he had to get physically stronger, again, Xavier Booker, and play harder to allow his skill set to translate to real production. If he does that, Indiana's ceiling goes much higher. Because in terms of his potential, now he's not going to be TJD no matter what he does no. this year. But he could replace a lot of important things that they got from Trace if if he's able to do that successfully. But I think it's very much an open question. Well, next is a six foot nine, two hundred forty pound transfer, Peyton Sparks from Indiana School Ball State. He averaged thirteen point three points a game and eight point seven rebounds a game while shooting. 59 and 40 and 53 in the Mac. He also averaged a block per game. Yeah, this was a good get because he's, he'll be a two year guy. Um, so he, they're not, they're not just necessarily locked in just this season. And that's, that's an important thing. We we've seen that with a few of these guys we've talked about, uh, uh, so far in these previews, uh, and at Michigan state, of course, Tyson Walker, you get to that second year as a transfer up guy, Sometimes that's what's needed to go from decent player to really solid contributor. Right. For this year, I think you'd like, you know, before they got Kalal Ware, they got Sparks early in the portal, and they considered that a big get. So he should be able to help this team. Um, you know, the production in the MAC was solid. Good production uh, at Ball State. Free throw shooting, a little bit of a, a knock at 53%, but I think there's no question. He's going to be a big part of the equation at the four and the five. And why this matters is, you know, we just talked about it with Malik Renault. I think to some extent, it'll be an issue for where as well. These are young guys who maybe haven't still haven't fully figured out how to play without getting in foul trouble. So having a guy like sparks in reserve could be really big. Well, speaking of six foot nine players, the next one is Anthony Walker, 200 foot, 20-pound grad transfer from Final Four participant, the Miami Hurricanes. Uh, he's also going to give more post-depth. He averaged 2.8 points a game and 1.9 rebounds a game in about 11 minutes in a reserve role, shooting 42, 13, and 64. Yeah, and, you know, his his role decreased because earlier in his career, he averaged double-digit, almost double-digit points per game as a sophomore. So he had been more productive earlier you know two years prior at miami as opposed to his junior year and then last year playing for a better team obviously right. too yeah um 
But Woodson likes his length, likes his defense. And again, on a team with those young big men who maybe still have some things to figure out, having Walker as a body with size and experience is a nice security blanket. I think he will be in the rotation. Not necessarily huge minutes, but you know, I would figure at least, you know, eight to ten and maybe more. Who knows? Next newcomer, Gabe Cups, six foot one cups a point guard. Uh, and is the one that you mentioned earlier that is the backup who presumably be the backup to Xavier Johnson this season. Yeah, and you know, he's from Ohio, but when you see him, you're gonna think, oh, Indiana point guard, because he's got <laughs> it down, at least in terms of the way he looks. Not a great athlete. He's small, but very skilled and very competitive. He was a very good deep shooter, um, not really a shot creator, which, again, we, we see these kind of guys who come into the Big Ten. They're not big. They were able to get by with it in high school. You need to see how he can adjust to the college level because he doesn't have great quickness. Um, so he's got to find ways to get loose to be able to get his shot off. Um for right now, I would expect him to be Johnson's caddy, you know, yeah. hopefully give Indiana good decision-making, um, make the right play, limit mistakes. And if he can get loose for some shots, maybe he can make an impact there off the bench. But he's definitely somebody that that would figure into the mix going forward for Indiana at that position. For this year, I think it'll be in a reserve role. And finally, for newcomers, for the Hoosiers is uh... – 6'3 guard recruit Ja'Kai Newton from Georgia, who was ranked just outside the top 100. Explosive athlete. Jumper is a work in progress. But, you know, we've talked about Indiana's depth on the perimeter. And, you know, I would say, ideally, you figure Johnson and Galloway um, and uh, McBacco are your three starters. And I think Caleb Banks and Gabe Cup are probably going to be two guys who are in the rotation. They probably want one more. And so that would be the two returnees, Gunn and Leo, and then Newton as the competitors for that. The fact that Newton has that athletic ability and they like his defensive potential, to me, that makes him the most likely of the three. The other two guys could factor in the two returnees um, if they can show much improved shot making because th those are the strengths of those guys. They're not strengths for Newton. But at this point, I'm not betting on that happening. I would give Newton the edge just because he has the physical tools and the defensive mindset that I think probably would be more valuable and more reliable for Mike Woodson. All right, just a quick reminder, too, that we have the Beat Rod uh, contest this year. So you have to come up with the final standings for the Big Ten, 1 through 14. And today's apropos because... Indiana's famously, who Rod predicted to win the Big Ten last, or to be, he was his number one pick last year, but that they would not win the Big Ten, which you're right. I was right on that. That's right. <laughs> I don't know if they were the number one team, but certainly they were the the one with the the way it works now. It's well, so they much, were. It, they were number two. They were number and two. I said I was picking them one, but I, I didn't think they'd win it. So I'm going to take that as a victory. <laughs> so reasonable minds may differ, but I'm going to take that as a win. Uh, so you could send in your entries to Eric, at E-R-I-C at T-F-F-I-N-O-T-S.com. Yeah. And you can, uh, one through 14, we use the big 10 standings after, um, for the big 10 tournament as our, uh, final standings. Also for tiebreaker, which we had to use last year, send in the amount of points Michigan state scores against Michigan in their two games this season. Also, obviously add your 
uh, submit your name as well. And uh, those entries have to be in before the first Big Ten game is played in December. So looking at this team, uh, you know, obviously not as ballyhooed as last year. There's not as the preseason expectations. And I think this is probably, to your point, talking about DeWoodson, this is maybe a, a good indication of you know, where he is as a coach and what he's able to pull off with this team. Can he get more out of them than people expect and you know, elevate sort of our opinion of him as a coach? To me, this, this still looks like a tournament team because there's a lot of obvious talent and there also seems to be reasonable odds that they're going to have enough depth. You know, I like the fact that they've made those, those portal additions in the post. Um, they look like they should be able to have a really solid four man rotation, even if those two younger guys aren't as totally reliable as you would like to see. I think having, having sparks and Walker as backups is, is really important, particularly sparks who looks like he could be good enough to maybe even start if, if it was warranted. Um, there are things I like about this team, but let's also be honest there. I think you have to wonder about the scoring because you lose Jackson Davis, who is so reliable. You also lose cop who was at least a reliable part of their shooting and hood Shafino, of course, who was a dynamic offensive player. That's a lot. It's a lot to replace on the positive side. You know, if you're an Indiana fan, you say, well, we didn't really have Xavier Johnson and we get him back. So that's an ad. Okay. I think there are positive and potentially negative aspects to that, but if it cuts the right way, that could be a big deal. Um, obviously the, the transfers, um, you have Renault coming back for a sophomore year. Maybe he can take a jump. And and then you add McBaco, who, you know, even with the questions about the fit, is a top ten talent coming out of high school. Right. So right. it's not as if it's not as if this is a guy we're not expecting to be productive. We do. We think he's going to do some things. The question is, how well does it fit within the context of what Indiana ideally needs from him? So I see a tournament team here. I don't see a team that seems likely to me to compete at the very top of the league. And there are reasons why we've got them where we do and not higher. And primarily it's because I think the teams that we're going to talk about from here on are bringing back a lot more in the way of proven production. Bottom line. Less questions. They're just bringing. Yeah. They're fewer questions. They're bringing back more and you know, one of those you could be, you could argue about with Ohio state, but I think when we talk about them, you're going to see why I've got them where we've got them where we do. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Indiana to me, I'm expecting a decent year. I'm not expecting greatness. And that's just kind of where this program's been for way too long. So would you, would you say this is a good way to grade Woodson? If they overachieve from where you have them here, significantly would you say then you could feel more comfortable that he might be the right choice maybe but but he's got a this is the problem because at indiana you're grading on a curve so it's not well if he gets him to the ncaa tournament or hey if he finishes in the top three you know let's put it this way mike woodson over the last two years has done actually 
maybe slightly more than Steve Peichel has done. But nobody you would talk to puts Mike Woodson yet, at least, in the same category as Steve Peichel as a coach, right? Right. Well, why is that? Well, part of it is you're grading on a curve. There are expectations that go with these programs. And at Indiana, as I've been saying this whole discussion, it's fine to get to a tournament consistently, but that's not the end of the story. You know, it would be like, look, we'll put it in Michigan State terms. If Tom Izzo last year, if they'd lost to USC or Marquette in the tournament, that would have been three straight years without a trip to the second weekend. Three straight years where the tournament was actually played. Yeah. By his standards, by program standards that, you know, in that case that he's created, it's not just even the program standards, it's his own standards. People would be talking. People would be saying, hey, is there a problem? And at most places in the country, that would be a ridiculous conversation to have. Hey, (laughs) you're in the tournament and you won a game a couple of those years. Where's the, you know, where's the problem? But at Michigan State, it would be a it would be perceived as a problem. At Indiana, although with each passing year, I think it gets less and less justified. The fact is, because of what basketball means at that school and in that state, that pressure cooker is never going to get turned off. They could go another thirty years of struggles like this, and I think it will largely be the same because that fan base is not going to forget what they think they're entitled to. So. I don't know. When you say overachieve, what does that mean? If they finish fourth and they win a game in the tournament and lose in the round of 32, yeah, that might be a slight, slight overachievement from what I have them at here. But I don't think that would be enough to change the dynamic, no. If you're telling me, oh, they win the Big Ten or they get to a Sweet 16 or an Elite Eight, yeah, maybe then you start thinking about, well, okay, that's a positive data point. He would still probably need to do more to be convincing, but that would be a positive data point. The The thing is, I, I really don't expect that. I think that he's likelier, likeliest to sort of stay in this limbo where they're not bad enough to fire him, <laughs> but are they really on the trajectory? I, I think it's almost a no-win situation because of his age. I don't know that he's a guy that's going to give you the time that would be necessary to to say at the end of his tenure, hey, they're they're where they needed to be or they're heading firmly in the right direction. You know, somebody like Rick Pitino, who St. John's just hired and who's older than Woodson, it doesn't matter because Rick Pitino is one of those rare guys that if not this year, next year, St. John's will be a problem for everybody. Yeah. Right. That's who he is. Mike Woodson's not that right. So Rick Pitino, you could say, Hey, if we get five years out of him, that could set the program up for the next 20. You can make that argument with him. I don't know whether it'll work out that way. I kind of doubt it, but for as long as he's going to be there, they're going to be really good. Mike Woodson. It's, it's not that. And that's to me, if you're not going to go with a younger guy, who's got a much longer runway in front of him, potentially, that's what you need him to be if you're going to hire a guy in his mid-60s. And I just don't think Mike Woodson's that. So I, I see more purgatory limbo for Indiana basketball, unfortunately for them. 
Well, that's a probably good summary and that's a good place to stop. Just a reminder, if you've not yet had an opportunity, please subscribe to the show, share it with your friends to make sure that we're all ready for the season when it starts. Only about a little over a month away at this point. So we're getting close and football season is well underway at this point. Fall is underway as well. It really started to feel like the weather's ready to turn. And once it starts turning, that means it's time for basketball. So until next time, the final four is on the schedule. Go green. Thank you.